If you've been around for the last uh, month or two, you'll know that uh, we've been doing this series uh, looking at God's blueprint or God's design for how life should be lived in his creation, which uh, is all well and good, but the reality is we live in this broken, fractured, sin-destroyed world where things don't always work out as intended. And so, uh, as week after week, we have tried to paint a picture of God's purpose for sex and marriage and singleness and family and gender and identity. I think there's every chance that rather than inspiring you and causing you to leave each week kind of bursting with hope, Uh, is actually, for some of us in the room, had the opposite effect and compounded our feelings of pain and loss and disappointment. Uh, And so, before we finish this series, I, I thought we could maybe pause for a week and take a step back uh, and try to create a framework of how to respond when life delivers you a bad hand, how to respond when things don't quite work out in the way you had hoped or dreamed. And to help us out, I want to share with you one of the many love stories that we find scattered through the pages of the Bible. Uh, If you want to follow along, uh, it's found in Genesis chapter 29. Uh, It's the story of Jacob, who's the son of Isaac and the grandson of... Abraham, that's right, uh, a bit part player in the story of the Bible, so I'm, no, no, I'm relieved that you know Abraham, that's right. Uh, and to bring you up to speed, Genesis chapter 29 uh, is kind of halfway through Jacob's life, and so far, if you know his story, I think it's fair to say he's had a pretty rough ride. Uh, it's like Jacob has been set up for failure from birth. For starters, his twin brother Esau is the first one out of the womb. Now, the firstborn uh, back then in the ancient Middle East, that was a huge deal because it meant not only inheriting a double portion of your father's estate, but you would be the one who would go on and lead the whole family. And Jacob just missed it. I mean, he literally comes out of the womb, the story tells us, with his hand wrapped around the ankle of his brother, trying to pull him back in and squeeze out ahead of him. So from birth, he's scraping to get ahead and fighting, warring, raging against his station in life. And to add insult to injury, his parents named him Jacob which means heel snatcher. Uh, And as if that wasn't bad enough, uh, like a daily reminder, you came out second uh, to add uh, insult to injury. That was actually a Hebrew idiom for a charlatan or a deceiver or a liar. So that wasn't the most flattering of names to go through life with, and it certainly didn't set him up for an easy life. And sadly, if you know the story, 
Jacob lives up to his name. His story is just this catalogue of lies. It's one lie after another. He deceived his older brother Esau to get the birthright of the oldest son. Then he deceived his father to get the blessing from him. And then a a little later on in a slightly random story, he deceived his father-in-law to get the best sheep. And so as a result of this, Jacob is always kind of looking over his shoulder, trying to outrun each of these mistakes. But ultimately it doesn't work. And in the end, ironically, he gets deceived. It's like the con artist gets played. It's as if the narrator of Genesis is saying, what goes around comes around. And the place he gets deceived is in the whole arena of love and marriage. Now, the point where we join the story Jacob has been forced to leave home because his brother wants to kill him. I mean, literally wants to kill him, which I think is kind of sibling rivalry at its most extreme. And so he kind of flees for his life. And after quite an eventful journey where, among other things, he literally fights with what many people take to be God himself, he finally ends up at the village where his grandfather Laban lives. And he's chatting with uh, some shepherds by the well outside the village when who should appear on the scene but Laban's daughter Rachel. And that's where we join the story, verse 9. Jacob was still talking uh, with the other shepherds by the well when Rachel arrived with her father's flock, for she was a shepherd. Uh, which it transpires uh, was a bit of a turn-on back then. Uh, And because Rachel was... Did I just say that? (laughs) Sorry, I told you I was tired. Uh, And and because Rachel was his cousin, moving swiftly on, uh, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, uh, and because the sheep and goats belonged to his uncle Laban, Jacob went over to the well and moved the stone from its mouth and watered his uncle's flock. In other words he's showing off a bit. And then verse 11, uh, not backwards in coming forwards, Jacob kissed Rachel and he wept aloud, uh, which seems to suggest it's love at first sight. He explained to Rachel that he was her cousin on her father's side. Uh, Now, back then, I think being in love with your cousin, that was was okay. Um, uh, He explained that uh, he was the son of her aunt, Rebecca. Uh, And so Rachel quickly ran and told her father, Laban. As soon as Laban heard that his nephew, Jacob, had arrived, he ran out to meet him. He embraced and kissed him and brought him home. When Jacob had told him his story, Laban exclaimed, you really are my own flesh and blood. After Jacob had stayed with Laban for about a month, Laban said to him, look, you shouldn't work for me without pay just because we're relatives. Tell me how much your wages should be. Now, Laban had two daughters. The older daughter was named Leah, and the younger one was Rachel. There was no sparkle in Leah's eyes, which was a Hebrew euphemism for not very attractive. Genuinely, that's what it meant. But Rachel, we're told, had a beautiful figure 
and a lovely face. And so it comes as no surprise that in the very next line we read that Jacob was in love with Rachel. No surprise there. Now just to say, as far as I'm aware, this is the only place in the Bible that speaks of being in love. Now, uh, the Song of Songs, you can go and check that out later. That's all about being in love. But I think this story is the only place that speaks of being in love in this way. Most of the love stories in the Scriptures uh, actually involve arranged marriages, uh, which was kind of the norm in that day and age. And so most of the love stories in the Bible take place after the wedding. This is one of the few that actually take place before the wedding, and it includes two of the ingredients that I think all of us crave, sexual chemistry and electric feelings. Rachel, we're told, had a beautiful figure and a lovely face, and Jacob was in love. But ironically, the story is an absolute disaster. Let's keep reading. Since Jacob was in love with Rachel, he told her father, I'll work for you for seven years if you'll give me Rachel, your younger daughter, as my wife. Now, again, just a little bit of explanation is required here. Back then, you were supposed to pay a dowry to your father-in-law, but if you remember, Jacob is on the run, and he hasn't got a whole lot to offer other than hard graft and seven years of it. Laban replied, agreed. I'd rather give her to you than to anyone else. I'll tell you, conversations with potential father-in-laws, they, they can be tricky at times. Anyway, uh, moving on. Uh, stay and work with me, he said. And so Jacob worked seven years to pay for Rachel, but his love for her was so strong that it seemed to him but a few days. Finally, the time came for him to marry her. I have fulfilled my agreement, Jacob said to Laban. Now give me my wife so I can sleep with her. And so Laban invited everyone in the neighborhood and prepared a wedding feast. But that night, when it was dark, which is an important detail, um, they didn't have electricity back then. Uh, so when nightfall came and it was dark, uh, no one could see anything. Uh, when it was dark, Laban took Leah, who, if you remember, had no sparkle in her eyes, Laban took Leah to Jacob, and in the dark, he slept with her. Uh, Laban, uh, we're told, had given Leah a servant, Zilpah, to be her maid. Now, uh, I was at a wedding yesterday. Uh, these kind of things, they aren't wedding gifts nowadays, but back then, again, that was the norm. Verse 25. But when Jacob woke up in the morning, it was Leah. Now, life can be like that, can't it? <laughs> I mean, we work, we sweat. Some of the husbands cling onto their wives. <laughs> but it, Bear with me here. Hear me out, please. No, not speaking from personal experience. <laughs> Told you I was tired. <laughs> 
We work, we sweat, we labor, we hope, we pray, we anticipate, we wait. And finally we get there, we arrive, and it is incredible for a night. And when we wake up in the morning, it's Leah. It is not all we'd hoped for, it's a disappointment. Let's be real. Life is full of letdowns. The human experience is anything but ideal. Whatever it is for you, maybe it's love or marriage, sex, romance. Maybe it's your career, success, fame, fortune. Maybe it's your education and getting a certain grade or qualification. Maybe it's travel or racking up experiences. Whatever it is, it is only a matter of time before it is the equivalent of Leah because it cannot live up to your expectations. Maybe some of your expectations some of the time, but definitely not all your expectations, all of the time. And I think nowhere can this be more true than in this whole arena of marriage. That's what we see in the story right here. And I think if we're honest, that's what we see in life in general. Uh, And Again, I'm not kind of leading out on my own personal experience here like some kind of big kind of public, get this off my chest. But marriage will let you down at times. And I don't mean that negatively. Marriage can be amazing. As we've looked at it through this series, it is amazing, but it's not heaven on earth all of the time. I love Paul's one-sentence summary of marriage in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, those who marry will face many troubles. And he goes on to say, he's writing to single people, if you remember, he says, I want to spare you this. Now, if you think about it, it's just obvious. I mean, take any two people with their own problems and issues and selfishness and idealism and unrealistic expectations and a whole heap of quirky habits and put them together in the same house in a confined space and over time it doesn't equal bliss all of the time. And because of this, And this isn't just true in marriage, I think actually it's relevant for all of life. Because of this, usually we tend to make one of two mistakes here. We err on one of two sides. I think some of us, some of the time, under-desire love and marriage and career and success and whatever it is for you. And so we pretty much settle for a life of mediocrity. We never truly live because we are too scared or cautious or logical or cynical to ever step out and risk 
anything. It's like we always play it safe. We, we, we call ourselves a realist, which is really just another term for a pessimist in denial. We, we, we're really let down because we're really brave enough to risk anything. Some of us under-desire. The rest of us, perhaps over-desire. We over-desire love or marriage or career or success or whatever it is for you. And because we have all these crazy dreams and wild expectations, we end up putting so much pressure on love and romance or on our kids or on our work or whatever to fulfill us. We put so much pressure on it that it ends up unable to stand up under the weight of the expectation we lay on it. And as a result, I think we keep jumping from relationship to relationship, from job to job, from experience to experience, always hoping that the next one will finally be the one. But it's only a matter of time before we wake up one morning and find ourselves lying next to Leah. Or worse than that, you wake up one morning and you realize you are Leah. I mean, for every person who can perhaps relate to Jacob in this story, there's someone else who can relate to Leah. And it's painful. And in all seriousness, I get how hard this story is for many of us, especially women. Uh, I think of the body image issues that women in this day and age in our society have to deal with. Now, men do as well, but particularly women. I mean, how many of us, male or female, look like the airbrushed models plastered over billboards all across our city? Maybe one or two percent of us on a good day, and certainly not for long. I mean, age catches up with all of us. Now look, there's all of that, but maybe you can't even see that because right now you're, you are internally raging that this story is in the Bible in the first place. I mean, it's sexist, it's misogynistic, it perhaps reinforces all your worst thoughts about the church. But I just want you to know, the Bible isn't condoning this. The Bible certainly isn't saying this is right or the way to live. It's simply acknowledging that these things, tough as they are, exist in the real world. That that's what the world was like back then. And sadly, for all our supposed progress, not a whole lot has changed. So, just because this story is in the Bible, it's not saying any of this is a good thing at all. In fact, keep reading uh, and you'll see the fallout from this, and you'll see that this really isn't a good thing at all. What have you done to me? Jacob raged at Laban. I worked seven years for Rachel, 
Why have you tricked me? Laban replied, well, it's not our custom here to marry off a younger daughter ahead of the firstborn. But wait until the bridal week is over, then we'll give you Rachel too, provided you promise to work another seven years for me. And so, because he was in love, Jacob agreed to work seven more years. That's 14 years of hard labor in total. Now, a week after Jacob had married Leah, Laban gave him Rachel too. And Laban, we're told, gave Rachel a servant, Bilhar, to be her maid. And so, Jacob slept with Rachel too, and he loved her much more than Leah. He then stayed and worked for Laban the additional seven years. Verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he enabled her to have children. Let's just pause right there. I think this is a wonderful insight into the heart of God. Like, we see how brutal life can be at times. And we also see how good and kind and compassionate the God who made it all is. If you're here this morning, and as we read this story, you relate more to Leah than to Jacob, I want you to know God sees you. He sees you. He sees your pain. He sees your insecurity. He sees your sense of inadequacy. He sees you. And I love that God sees that Leah was unloved and so enabled her to have children. But reading on, we're also told Rachel could not conceive. Now even today, infertility can be just heartbreaking. And I certainly don't want to be insensitive to, to those in the room who who carry the very real pain around this. But back in the ancient world, this was a disaster on every level. Like, if you didn't have children, you, you didn't have anyone to care and provide for you in old age. There were no care homes or NHS. You were alone. And if you didn't have a son, the family line would die right there. So people thought that you were cursed by God, and Rachel, the beautiful one that Jacob is in love with, is unable to have children. Leah, on the other hand, verse 32, Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, the Lord has noticed my misery, and now my husband will love me. She soon became pregnant again, gave birth to another son. She named him Simeon, for she said, The Lord heard that I was unloved, and he has given me another son. 
Then she became pregnant a third time and gave birth to another son. He was named Levi, for she said, surely this time my husband will feel affection for me since I've given him three sons. Once again, Leah became pregnant and gave birth to another son. She named him Judah, for she said, now I will praise the Lord. And she stopped having children. And so, for years, Leah is searching for fulfillment and satisfaction in her marriage to Jacob. She thinks having children will solve it. It doesn't. And eventually, she says, enough is enough. And finally, she resolves to just praise the Lord. Now, Just by way of an aside, really, returning to how we started this whole series, wherever you're at right now, I want you to know that this life is a gift. All of life, a gift. Love, marriage, singleness, sexuality, food, drink, your job, is all a gift. Listen, I think we need to stop seeing life through the lens of entitlement and reshape our thinking around a heart posture of gratitude. All of this life is a gift. And you were created to enjoy it as an act of worship to the God who created you. And so... Whatever hand this life has dealt you, I know it's hard at times, but I want to encourage you to hunt for reasons to praise God in the midst of it all. To look beyond the clouds and see the rays of sunshine that every now and again burst through. That being said, the story goes on. Nearly there. Chapter 30. This is just the introduction, by the way. Uh, I haven't launched into my three points. (laughs) 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 Time's on my side. (laughs) It's only quarter to 12. Uh, The story goes on. Chapter 30, verse 1. Is he joking or not? (laughs) He is not joking. Uh, Chapter 30, verse 1. When Rachel saw that she wasn't having any children for Jacob, she became jealous of her sister. She pleaded with Jacob Give me children or I will die. Then Jacob became furious with Rachel. Am I God? He asked. He's the one who's kept you from having children. Then Rachel told him, well, take my maid Bilhar and sleep with her. She will bear children for me. And through her, I can have a family too. And really from there, the story just spirals downwards. Jacob is sleeping with every woman in sight. Leah is still this baby factory with eight sons and who knows how many daughters. Laban, the father-in-law, is more and more manipulative. Rachel is seething with jealousy. And although she eventually ends up with two sons of her own, her life is characterized by lies and bitterness and cheating and stealing and idol worship. But here's my point. Well, here's my first point of three. Very quick. 
I want you to see God is at work in everything. God is at work in everything. This marriage was a disaster. To say that this family was dysfunctional would be something of an understatement. But God was at work in this, and he still used it. Leah isn't turned into a beautiful princess. That's Disney, not the Bible. The Bible is real life. But instead, she has eight sons, one of whom is named Judah, who goes on to become the father of the tribe of Judah. And from his tribe comes the long, long line of Jewish kings, David, Solomon, Hezekiah, Joash, Josiah. And then centuries later, one born in a stable in Bethlehem, Jesus the Messiah. Meaning that out of that train wreck of a marriage comes Jesus comes the embodiment of the God that we know and love today. Meaning that God isn't just in the letdowns. I'd argue that God uses the letdowns of life. He's at work even in the midst of the failed hopes and dreams, the disappointments, the the situations that feel like they are a million miles away from how he intended things to be when he designed everything way back in the beginning. And so, today, won't you come to the place where in faith you're willing to say, yeah, I see and believe that in a world that is far less than ideal, God is still at work. He uses our mistakes. He uses our misjudgments. I think He uses our bad decisions I'd go so far as to say he even uses our sins. Not only does he see you wherever you're at right now, not only is he with you, but he is absolutely still at work in the midst of it all. And so, whether you are single or married, lonely or in love, filled with joy and delight or pain and grief. Maybe you're here today and you're you're single and you so wish you're married. Maybe you're married and secretly in your darkest moments you wish you were single again. Maybe you kind of fluctuate between the two. Maybe you know the pain of childlessness. Maybe you struggle with your identity. God sees you. God sees you. And not only is God with you, He is also at work all around you. And I believe the degree to which you open yourself up to His rule and His reign, His his lordship over every area of your life, you can be confident that even through the pain and the tears, God can use it all for good. Who knows what God is going to do, not only through all the good stuff, but also, and sometimes even more, through the hard stuff. Not only through the success, 
but through the failure. Not, not all, only through all the stuff you've done right, but maybe through all the stuff you've done wrong. That's the first lesson I think we can learn from this pretty harrowing story. God is at work through everything. Two further quick points I want to make before we're done. Here's the second one. Marriage is temporary. Marriage is temporary. Fast forward from Jacob and Leah to Mark's gospel in the New Testament, where we find mention of one of their great, 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 great grandsons from the line of Judah, Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, and Mark 12 uh, is right slap bang in the middle of this biography about Jacob's descendant, Jesus. And it records for us some of Jesus' teaching about marriage. I want us to pick it up in verse 18. Then Jesus was approached by some Sadducees. These were religious leaders who say there is no resurrection from the dead. Uh, and they posed this hypothetical question for Jesus, uh, looking to trip him up around this whole issue of resurrection from the dead. Here's the question, and bear with it. Teacher, Moses gave us a law that if a man dies leaving a wife without children, his brother should marry the widow and have a child who will carry on the brother's name. Well, suppose there were seven brothers. Hypothetically speaking, the oldest one married and then died without children. And so the second brother married the widow, but he also died without children. Then the third brother married her. And this continued with all seven of them, and still there were no children. Last of all, the woman also died. So tell us then, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? For all seven were married to her. Jesus replied, and I think this is the ultimate put down. <laughs> Your mistake is that you do not know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. Boom. For when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. In this respect, they will be like the angels in heaven. Notice that for Jesus, marriage, as fantastic as it is, it is merely a stopgap until the end of time when the dead rise, ushering in the renewal of all things. In the future, when those of us who have been saved by faith in Jesus' death and resurrection step into the new heaven and earth, there will not be any marriage. Uh, I'm hoping that uh, I'll still recognize Helen and that we will be friends. Uh, I say that. <laughs> <laughs> We will be, this, oh, that was completely unintentional, uh, we will be, what a morning this is, um, uh, we will be friends, but our left ring fingers will be bare in eternity, which means that love and marriage, sexuality, romance, all the things we've been looking at in this series, they are all penultimate. Uh, at their best, they are nothing more than a shadow or a foretaste of what's to come in the future. Now look, I know 
that this series has been incredibly difficult and hard, painful for a number of you, because the very real struggles you have uh, uh, around the topics we've been focusing on are real, and it's hard. And in the midst of it all, I, I know it can feel like there is no way out of all of this. But I want you to know, whatever situation you find yourself in right now, good or bad, it is only temporary. As Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 4, that is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and will not last very long. Yet, they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. And so, we don't look at the troubles that we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze above those clouds to the sun that's above it all. We fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone but the things we cannot see will last forever. Yes, this life, it can be incredibly cruel and unjust at times. And even if we cannot see an end to our present troubles, there is the sure and certain hope that they are still producing something glorious that truly will last forever. So first, God's at work in everything. Second, marriage is temporary. And then thirdly and finally, through it all, there is still better to come. I do not think it's a coincidence that the Bible starts with the wedding of Adam and Eve and ends with the marriage supper of the Lamb when Christ returns for his bride. In the penultimate chapter in Revelation 21, John describes in this vision he receives how I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. Uh, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there'll be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. Now, so much of the language in the last couple of chapters of the Bible, it is straight out of the first chapters of Genesis, right at the beginning of the Bible. That the future world that is waiting for all of us who are followers of Jesus is kind of like the Garden of Eden, only it's even better. 
It's not just one man and one woman, it's men and women from every tongue, tribe, and nation. It's not just one man and one woman in a relationship for life, it's all of humanity united in relationship to the Creator God forever and ever and ever and ever. Look, wherever you're at, whether you're a believer or not, Ultimately, you were created for the Garden of Eden, for a life with no letdowns and no pain and no disappointments ever. But instead, you were born into a world that is full of pain and full of letdowns and full of disappointment. But for those who've been saved by Jesus, one day you will live in the world as it was always intended to be. But between now and then, nothing in this life can fill the void in your heart that's caused by our departure from Eden. Not the best love story, or the best marriage, or the most perfect children, not success in your career, or all the things you're dreaming for, whatever it is, none of it is God. And so the letdowns and the pain, the disappointments, they will keep coming. The, the sense of inadequacy, the, the insecurities will come and go. And when they come, I want to plead with you, let marriage be marriage and let God be God. Let, let success be success and let God be God. Let, let failure be failure and let God through it all be your source of fulfillment and satisfaction and strength and joy and what Jesus called the life that is truly life. And for all those who in faith choose to live that way, know that on the horizon there is an address with your name on it where in the language of the prophet Isaiah, Sorrow and sighing will flee away, and you will be with God. My guess is, that's why the closing paragraph in the Bible is this prayer that's wrapped up in wedding imagery, culminating in that line, the Spirit and the Bride say, come. You know, a Jewish bride never knew the exact day of her wedding. I mean, imagine that. I mean, just didn't know when it was going to happen. She just knew her lover was coming soon. And so she would kind of live every day with one eye out of the window. Is it going to be today? Is it going to be today? Is it, maybe it'll be today. Or maybe it'll be today. She, she would live with one eye on the horizon waiting. And I suggest, actually, that's a pretty good way to live all of life waiting in hope, waiting in expectation for the day to come when all things are made new.